Kevin mentioned Psalm 6 is um, it's a psalm of lament, and so in terms of feel this morning, we may, it may feel a little bit different than your average Sunday morning, but I think that's, that's good and that's necessary. So before we jump into Psalm 6, I just want to pray and uh, ask, ask the Spirit to be with us in our time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to, to engage you through your word. Let's take a hard look at the pain that we see in the Psalms and to acknowledge the pain that we have in our lives. I pray, Lord, that you would be with us through this and encourage us to step into this wholeheartedly. We're grateful for you and we love you. Amen. So if you'd open your Bibles or turn on your Bibles, as John Pell said the other, the other week, to Psalm 6. That's where we'll start. I'm just going to read it, and then we'll jump in after that. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are shaking with terror. My soul also is struck with terror, while you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, and save my life. Deliver me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who can give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eyes waste away because of grief. They grow weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and struck with terror. They shall turn back and in a moment be put to shame. It's pretty heavy. You can see that the psalmist is clearly in pain. And it's calling out to God for answers. Now, this style of psalm has a specific form. It's a word that's been thrown around this morning already. It's called lament. Uh, but before we kind of move into that, I just want to ask, what does that mean? You know, what is lament? John Swinton, one of, my, one of my favorite authors, defines it this way. He says, a lament is a form of prayer that is a repeated cry of pain, rage, sorrow, and grief that emerges in the midst of suffering and alienation. Lament asks hard questions of God, like, why is this happening? How long will you allow this, and where are you in my grief? It's the cry of one who feels wronged and feels innocent. The calling out from a place of undeserved suffering. Lament demands that God answer the one calling. I chose this psalm to teach on because in the last few years, I've been extremely drawn to the idea of lament as a part of a full, holistic relationship with God. When life feels unfair or unjust, or you're hurt or you have this pain, who better to call on for answers than God? This was particularly powerful through my parents' divorce, and in moments where I have felt helpless, lament has provided a lifeline. Now, for some of you, you're probably saying, gosh, it's kind of a downer for a church service. <laughs> uh, or maybe you're saying, gosh, I mean, that's fine, Greg, but 
this doesn't really apply to me. Things are going pretty well. And I would say, great, that's awesome. And my response would be this. I think that lament is often seen as individual prayer, and that's true, it is. But in its most powerful, profound form, lament is deeply communal. So I want to invite you to stay with me, because even if you don't feel like you have something to lament, someone next to you may. And I think when a community grieves together, it's a powerful means of healing and resisting evil. So, we know that as, as a church, both us and the Western church, we do praise really, really well. Um, probably like many of you, some of the most powerful moments early in my faith life were moments of praise. My junior year in high school, I began attending Life Center. Some of my friends, some of you probably have been there. I mean, talented musicians leading praise anthems that, that really fed my soul. It was really a, a shaping time in my faith. It was at Life Center that I learned to authentically worship the Lord. And yet, it presented a stark contradiction to when I was at home, caught in the middle of my parents fighting on their way to a divorce. It didn't feel like, at the time, that the church was a place to engage questions I had about pain. I wondered if it was okay to feel this way because my church experience was so overwhelmingly positive, and not in a negative way. It was really good. But I didn't... It didn't feel acceptable to ask these hard questions in church, that honest, angry, painful lament felt almost unholy or irreverent or maybe unbiblical. Now, over time, and through more study of Scripture, I came to realize that lament is is literally all over the Bible. You can't get away from it. It was an active part of the Israelite culture in the Old Testament and was very much a communal practice. Just as a quick survey, we see that over one-third of the psalms are psalms of lament, that the book of Job is one huge lament, that the prophet Jeremiah laments the situation of Judah during the Babylonian exile. The book of Lamentations is a collection of lament, and Jesus laments many times in the Gospels. And discovering this was incredibly comforting to me because it suggested that my feelings were not ungodly. And yet, lament was still strangely absent from my church experience. Over the last 10 years, I've noticed in several different churches that, again, lament isn't a regular part of community life. Walter Brueggemann is a widely recognized Old Testament scholar. He's author of many books and a sought-after speaker. He spent much of his time studying lament. He says this, A community of faith that negates lament soon concludes that the hard issues of justice and suffering are improper questions to pose at the throne because the throne seems to be only a place of praise. With so much going on around the world and in our daily life that calls for grieving, we must begin to ask the question, why not in church? After all, I mean, it's a real part of being human, a real part of being authentic. Authentic lament is is never manufactured. It comes out of a place of pain, anguish, injustice, and anger. Being the victim of gossip, cancer, disease, death of a loved one, divorce, infidelity in relationship, clinical depression, injustice at work, homelessness, injury that prevents activities one loves, loss of job, being the victim of crime, war, acts of terror, injustice waged against the poor. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Lament can come out of large-scale problems or problems and frustrations one faces in everyday life. And it's real to the core of who we are. 
So society tends to pretend that it's just not there. Why do we do that? Grief is a very real part of life, and in a broken world, there are many things to grieve about, and yet largely it's socially taboo. Now, I acknowledge it's incredibly hard to sit in the pain of life, to fully grieve injustice, to accept hard facts about death, terror, and crime. And often because grief is taboo and largely underpracticed, when we experience situations that call for the grieving process, we don't have the tools to fully engage it. For one who's experiencing deep grief, oftentimes our friends tell us, well, you know, it could be worse, or count your blessings that you do have, or don't worry, it will get better soon. These are all well-meaning statements, but they don't really speak to the depth of our pain or our grief. The Israelites in the Old Testament didn't really experience this. Lament was something they practiced ritually. It was part of the rhythm of their community. It was something they did over and over, over again so that when something happened that required grieving, they had a language and a process to step into that grief. Given our society's general discomfort with laments, I think it should be the responsibility of the church to have active discussions about what it looks like to support someone in a grief process. What can one do as a friend or a loved one of someone who is in deep pain? How can a community support its members and create space to express pain and grief? Henry Nouwen suggests that we do this best when we are willing to be present and let the silence speak. He says this, When we honestly ask ourselves which persons in our lives mean the most to us, we often find that it is those who, instead of giving much advice, solutions, or cures, have chosen rather to share our pain and touch our wounds with a gentle and tender hand. The friend who can be silent with us in a moment of despair or confusion, who can stay with us in an hour of grief and bereavement, who can tolerate not knowing, curing, not healing, and face with us the reality of our powerlessness. That is a friend who cares. Job's friends seem to get this, at least initially. For the first seven days and seven nights of their time with Job, they sit in silence with him. Nothing is said because, as the text says, they saw his suffering was very great. This is a kind of presence that Nowen is talking about. It's really hard to do. I was fortunate enough to have a young life leader that understood this during my high school years. Uh, Nels Johnson provided an excellent listening ear and offered little in way of solutions. When I didn't want to talk, he would be willing to hang out and not talk. His friendship made me feel like it was okay to feel the grief I was feeling. I was bearing a great weight in my heart, a feeling of grief and, I think more powerfully, a lack of control. And Nels continued to show up didn't solve any of the problems, and my grief didn't disappear, but his presence validated that my pain was acceptable, that I didn't have to mask it, and that it was okay that I felt this way. And despite often not having words, I felt the comfort of having someone there in it with me. See, I think that pain often creates a vacuum, a place where the person experiencing it cannot speak. And it's during these times where friends and community are vital, not to provide voice or answers, but to validate their friend and loved one with their presence. When we let the silence speak, 
can say powerful things. Now, while I've experienced lament, I know enough to know that I don't know much. And I know that there are those in our community who have experienced lament at a far greater level than I. I had the opportunity to sit down with Patrick Lorden this week, who in the last two years walked through his wife Lisa's battle with cancer. She passed away about a year ago. He shared something profound about community. He described how during this time, he was in such pain that he often had no words for prayer. Yet he said during these times that he rode the wave of the prayers of his friends and family around him. That despite not having any words to say to God, he knew he was still engaged with God through his community. He described the beauty of this community and the outpouring of gifts, cards, meals, work around the house, and other acts of kindness. But he seemed particularly grateful for the voice that those prayers around him gave. No solutions, just authentic engagement with God in the midst of great pain. I think it's absolutely essential that those who mourn with someone in deep pain not rush to provide answers. Allowing the silence to speak leans into the reality that there need not be any words to acknowledge someone's pain, that presence speaks far clearer than any words could. However, silence is not the end of the story, right? This is not the state that we're meant to live in permanently. When it's necessary to transition back to speech, the person in pain still may have no words to express, and I think that this is when we get to look at the Psalms. Consider again Psalm 6. I'm going to reread the first seven verses. And as I do, I want you to think back to a time where you've experienced great pain, or if that's hard to do, think back to a time of someone you know walking through great pain. Consider how the psalm speaks and how it authentically engages God without sugarcoating or niceifying prayer. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are shaking with terror. My soul also is struck with terror, while you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, save my life. Deliver me for the sake of your steadfast love, for in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who can give you praise? And this is where you really feel the pain of the psalmist, these last two verses. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eyes waste away because of grief. They grow weak because of all my foes. For someone who's in deep pain, this sounds like language they could use. The words of the psalmist are honest. They ask God how long it will be that they're in this anguish. They acknowledge the depth of their pain. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. There's no numbing of the pain of the psalmist. He's not numb. He's exhausted. It's a full acknowledgement of the grief that's present. I have two examples of good engagement and poor engagement with someone who's going through grief. 
I want to return to Job's friends. Because after the first seven days where Job and his friends were silent, Job begins to lament, he begins to speak. And his friends who have been so faithful and silent with him begin to provide solutions and assume they understand the whole situation. Now, similar to Job's friends, I've had several opportunities to walk through situations of great pain with some of my friends. And in one of these opportunities, I really messed it up. I tried to provide answers. I tried to say positive things that would make things better. And instead of helping the situation, all I did was I created a great space between my friend and I, and I missed an opportunity to truly comfort them. Now, luckily, fortunately, Jesus gives us a much better example, as he normally does. In case we were not convinced of the necessity of sitting in pain, I want you to consider the story of Jesus and Lazarus. In John 11, we see that Jesus comes to Judea when he hears that his friend Lazarus is sick. And when Jesus arrives on the scene, Lazarus has already died. He's been dead for several days. Now, it's clear from the text that Jesus knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And yet, even with this knowledge, he does something fairly distinct. When he comes to Lazarus' sisters, who are in deep grief over the loss of of their brother, what does he do? He weeps with them. Despite having the power to raise their brother from the dead immediately, Jesus stops and engages in lament. He cries with his friends. He values the process of authentic engagement with pain and wants to support his friends. So he doesn't rush to fix anything. He merely offers his presence. I want to settle here for a moment and really consider this. Because we live in a culture that wants at every turn to limit pain and suffering. And yet we sacrifice the process of true grieving, if we sacrifice the process of true grieving to put on a happy face, we do a grave injustice to the situation of the individual who suffers. And we miss out on an opportunity to function as true community. Patrick spoke of a time in our conversation where Russ and Shannon Davis's small group came to his house and worked outside for several hours around their yard. When they were done, they didn't just leave. They stayed and talked with Patrick for a while, offering their presence and listening ear. He discussed how the yard work was so generous and wonderful, but it was the presence of the group afterwards that seemed to be the most refreshing. In times of great pain, anger, and grief, lament provides us an access point. An access point for a believer to authentically engage God, even in the midst of great anger with him. Someone suffering something like the loss of a spouse may not be able to wrap their head around the idea that God may work this situation for good or whatever other positive statement we want to throw at it. It doesn't make sense. But if we can step into and encourage our friends to step into the point of asking God why and demanding to know where God is in the midst of the pain, praying the prayers of the psalmist that have been used for thousands of years, then one can remain faithful both to their pain and also to God at the same time. So what's next then? 
Many scholars suggest that lament was not a practice that originated in synagogues and temples, and instead that it was a practice that began at the local level. That it happened in clans and tribes and in family settings. It was used for the rehabilitation of a person or people. Now for us at Newcom, this makes perfect sense because our focus is small groups. Now, being comfortable with the grieving process takes time and it takes practice. In order to encourage this, I have a few suggestions. That bulletin that Kevin was talking about, I'd like you to grab it just for a second. If you look on the back side, well, actually, if you look on the front side, there's a quote from Walter Brueggemann that I showed earlier about engaging lamentous community. If you look on the back side, there's a, an L there, and the L is made up of numbers and Xs. There's 150 psalms. Of those 150, 65 of them are psalms of lament. So over a third. These are the words of God's people calling out in pain and asking God why. And so knowing that these are the psalms of lament, three groups I want to speak to with this application. The first is the individual in pain, the second is small groups, and then finally our church body. For the individual who's experiencing deep pain, in your prayer life, especially when you have no words, or maybe in times when your prayer life just doesn't exist, I want you to consider to try to recite a few of these psalms. Allow the psalmist's words to become your own and take comfort in the fact that you are remaining faithful even when you ask where God is when it hurts. This is not a magic formula. It's not a spell or something that's going to make the pain go away. But it allows us to turn our face towards God, even if our face is angry. To our small groups, once a month or once a quarter, or with some sort of regularity, I want to call us to take time during group to read a psalm of lament and leave space to reflect, to journal, and to pray. Ask your members to share the pain they're experiencing and together listen and just be present without solutions. Allow this to be a time just to be together. Finally, as a church body, if we practice this individually, in our groups regularly, perhaps we can create a space periodically to lament together as a community. Perhaps this won't feel as foreign and can lead to the full rounding out of a relationship with God corporately. We want to be a church that approaches the throne not only with praise, but also with our greatest pain. As we move towards fullness in our relationship with God as a community, we have to remember that lament is not easy, that it's not quick, it's not simple, but it's healing, and it's good. Would you pray with me? Father, in times of great grief, we want to know where you are. We want to know why it hurts so bad and when will it stop. 
I ask, Lord, that in these times that we would lean in to the prayers of the psalmist and allow the tradition and the words in Scripture to fuel our interaction with you. Help us not to sugarcoat pain or to avoid it, but to step into it, knowing that your process of lament is meant ultimately for our healing. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about this as a body. We pray that you help us to step into it. Amen. So we move back into a time of musical worship. I want to remind us that lament is most powerful when it's practiced as a community. Jesus also called us to engage each other as a community through another practice, communion. And so in these next couple songs, I want to invite us together as a body to come to the tables. We have communion stations set up in the corners. Just ask that when you're ready during the time of worship that we would come to the tables together.